We are glad you are here. This is a special service. It's such a joy to get together um, and to come in the mindset of putting Christ in the center of what we're doing tonight. That is our goal. It always is our target here as well. But what a joy to think about Christmas in this way. There's a verse that I think is up behind me here. Um, and this is the verse I want to teach out of for a few moments. Um, it comes from the book of Malachi. Uh, a fascinating passage that's within the scriptures. And so I want to talk about this for a little bit tonight, and then we have one more special number after I'm done, and, and then we'll fellowship together. Father, thank you for a chance to gather as the family of God. Thank you that your son did come, just as the Old Testament proclaimed that he would, Lord. He would come and live here among us, Lord. He would take on flesh and add it to his nature, Lord, and he would be fully God and fully man. And Lord, he would live a sinless life because he's God. He would go to the cross and you would judge him on our behalf so that we could sing tonight, so that we could rejoice in this life so that we could have eternal life forever and ever. So, Lord, our hearts are consumed with your Son tonight, Lord. He is our joy. He is our passion. And so we want to fill this season with that, Lord. Father, in days to come, we're going to meet with many people, Lord, families around the tables. The world is going to try to take back the joy that we have tonight. We pray that we would stand firm that Jesus is the center of Christmas. Give us strength to do that this week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I'd entitled the, kind of the whole service um, to, tonight called Meet, Meet Me at the Manger. I read an article a long time ago that used that title and kind of stuck with me. And I thought, what a neat title for a service. Meet Me at the Manger. But more I thought about it, the more I saw that that's really what the scriptures are about. Both Old and New Testament point us to this, this time right here that we've been singing about and reading about as Ted has read to us. I thought long and hard about this verse behind me, and I'll get into it in a moment here. And I got listening to some Christmas music and... You know, it's a busy time, and I, and, I, and I began to listen to that song, Oh, Little Town of Bethlehem. And the first verse just struck me. It said, Oh, little, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. It's a quiet little town south of Jerusalem. Above your deep and dreamless sleep, the stars go silent by. You can see the earth turning and high-speed cameras show the stream of stars. I think the writer is thinking along that line. And then it says this, Yet in thy dark street shineth. The dark streets of Bethlehem, and believe me, every street in the world is dark, what he's talking about. Sin has compassed the world. But in those dark streets, yet there is a light that shineth, it says, the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. What, what a statement that was. Look, I got thinking about 
prominent leaders that we've seen down through scriptures and even into our generations. I thought about King David and his son Solomon. I thought about the great King Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and Caesar Augusta. How about some current guys like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Patton, Reagan, every, all those other great men that we've had lead our country. Never do we go to their birthplace and celebrate it and sing together as a group of people. They were great men. They were honored by their countries. Some of them were on our, our currency. But we do not sing their praises because none of those men can save us. None of those men have the ability to take the punishment that we deserve. And so we come to Christmas time and we sing about a manger in a little humble town called Bethlehem. And we particularly sing about the one who laid in it. Think with me about the plan of God, how he set this up. Man falls, they reject God. We know this in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world. They say, literally say, God, we rather believe what Satan has to say than you. And man falls. And with Adam and Eve goes all of us with it. The world plunges into sin. Now there's murder, next chapter. There's death. And you have this all the way down. And, and, and people often talk to me when I'm witnessing to them. They'll say, oh, your Bible's full of blood and death and it's terrible. And I said, you know, you're right. It's a very good picture of man, isn't it? The Old Testament teaches you need a Savior, doesn't it? There's wicked stuff in the Old Testament. You read it, man, you go, oh my goodness, this is the Bible? Oh, it's telling you over and over, you need a Savior, you need a Savior, you need a Savior. We love this verse in Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4, it says, but when the fullness of time came... In other words, at God's perfectly planned time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now listen to this, that we might receive the adoption of sons. No longer foreigners, no longer alien to God, no longer set apart from him because of our sin. God at that perfect time sent the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us. That term underneath the law was a difficult one. Anybody try to keep it lately? Some of you have struggled in here already. <laughs> Your, our minds, we can't quite control them, can we? And, and, and so thoughts go and desires go and, and we find ourselves condemned under the law. Jesus came under that law. But the difference between him and us is he kept it perfectly. He fulfilled the law. He told the Pharisees later in his ministry, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. For who? For us. He said born of a woman, this very important term there. He came and humbled himself and added to his divine nature. Remember, he's fully God. But he added to his nature this humanity. He comes into the world just like you and I. I love that about this. You can't go to Jesus and say, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like to live on this world. Oh yeah? He was born in a barn. He, he was brought up in a, a very rural setting. He was brought up not in wealth. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He wasn't born to the religious elite. He lived a 
life, much like ours, he dealt with sin around him. And yet he never failed so that he could make us his children, his sons. Look at this verse behind me. It's a fascinating verse. It's in the book of Micah, right in the middle, chapter 5, verse 2. And it says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, this is the southern kingdom, and the Jerusalem's in there. And it's, these are these places of worship. And, but here's little Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, look what he says. From you, one will come forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now, look at the statement. His going forth are from long ago from the days of eternity. Micah is an amazing ministry. I wouldn't have wanted it. He is in the time before the fall of the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they fall to idol worship. They do godless things and God sends the Assyrians in 725 and he wipes them out. His ministry runs right through that. His ministry goes down to the, north, the southern tribes as well and tells them as well that they are going to perish. In fact, the first three chapters of the book teach that God is bringing judgment to his wicked children that have rejected him. But as God does so often in the scriptures, he takes these difficult times where judgment comes because they have abandoned their God and he always gives promises. He gives promises that he will return. In fact, here he promises a kingdom that will last forever and he will be, and he will be himself the king of kings ruling over it. See, Israel was full of sin and destruction. And here comes God. This is 700 years before Bethlehem, the birth of Christ. And he says, out of you is one going to come, an eternal one is going to come. And he's going to come and save his people from his sins. That's what he told, the angels told, the shepherds. And just like God promised, here it comes on that fateful night, that providential night, here comes Jesus into a world stained with sin and destruction. And he comes out of it. He comes to a nobody town. He's from parents that are not from the religious elite. He's revealed to lowly shepherds. He's worshipped by magi from a distant culture. There's no great fanfare there for him. He comes in in the most humble way you can imagine. The Bible says, though, that he was God. And I think that's what strikes us so much. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, this is Jesus the Bible is talking about, nothing came into being that has come into being. So we have creator in the cradle. Is that correct? We have the creator in the cradle. This verse in Micah tells us that he has, he, his, his goings are forth for from long ago, he, from the beginning, his idea of the Hebrew there has been, always been there. From the days of eternity and in Revelations, when we meet our Savior there, John reveals this to us and says in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and I am the Omega, 
says the Lord, who was and who was and uh, who is and who was and was to come, the Almighty. I thought about this long and hard. I'm thinking, Lord, we just don't get this. And I'm reminded of a passage in Isaiah 55 where he says, you know, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You know, if we would have wrote the Christmas story, we probably wrote it much different, wouldn't we have? We would have had lots of fanfare. We, we, would have wanted, we would have wanted everybody there to see this king that we loved. But that's not how the Lord works. He came to demonstrate humility. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. We're just thinking about this verse here. This verse reminds me of several things. One, it reminds me of the great humility Christ was as the God-man. He could have claimed power and he could have made people worship him, but he didn't. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 of how he came in and how he handled himself. In fact, Paul loves it so much, he says this word, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. So he starts with, if there's anything worth rejoicing and praising about, this is it. And he moves down in verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, who, although he, Christ Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hung on to. The Bible reminds us that he is fully God. He was at the right hand of the Father. He was with God. He was face to face in all equality with, with him. And he was God, the scripture says. But yet he said he did not hang on to that. Why? Because if he hangs on to it, we die. And he would have been right doing it. But he said, no, no. My father and I have a plan. It's to come rescue you. And we needed him. And so he comes and notice in the text it tells us that he doesn't hold on to this rightful position that he has, but he emptied himself he veils his deity. He takes on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Did they know what they were doing to the Savior? Did they know who hung on that cross later, three, you know, 33 years later after this? They drove nails into his hands and his feet and cursed and mocked him. Did they realize who they were doing this to? The Almighty God is in the cradle. The Almighty God is on the cross. And He's emptied Himself for you and I. Verse 8 says this, Being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, we can't preach the manger without preaching the cross. Unfortunately, in society, there are still some manger scenes where people don't give in to the pressure of God-hating people. But we can't leave him there. We can't leave him there. He, he got out of that manger and he lived a sinless life and he hung on a cross for you and I. Everything about him was humble, wasn't it? His entry, even when he came into Jerusalem, the time he does come to Jerusalem, what's he ride on? A donkey, doesn't he? Him and his mom rode on a donkey when they came to Bethlehem. He rides, into, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And then he is murdered like a common thief. Second thought, when I think about this verse in Micah, I also think about hope in a world devastated with sin. I don't think we always understand how prevalent sin is. We get accustomed to it. We get accustomed to foul language. We get accustomed to immorality. We get accustomed to all kinds of things that cost our Savior's death. We have a fallen world. We have dear loved ones in this room who struggle with cancer, who are struggling with illnesses. Sin has devastated the world. Do we understand that? The Lord does not return. You and I will die. They will throw dirt on your face and sing songs. That's because of sin. But Jesus came, and and we have great hope when we see him in the manger because it's this promise from the garden that God would redeem man. And so here he is. He's finally here. I, I... quoted this verse Sunday morning. I want to read it again to you. It's Hebrews 2, chapter, chapter 2, 14 and 15. It says, Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. I love this verse because it uses a double pronoun here. He himself, he wants, the writer wants no mistake that it's Jesus who added flesh to his deity. So he could die. That through death... See, see, he had to add this, he had to add flesh to his, his deity, he had to add humanity to his deity. So through death, that's a very important part of that verse. So through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Isn't that amazing? In Genesis 3, the devil grabbed man and said, I got him now. In Luke 2, he said, I'm taking him back. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 15 says, And might free those who through, for, uh, through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. See, people don't even know it. You may be in here and you don't know Jesus is your Savior. You are subject to death and slavery. And we beg you tonight to bend the knee to Jesus. Because he'll free you. Cancer may get you. Sickness may get you. The bus running late out there on Main Street may get you, but death won't. Satan won't get you. See, when we read this this verse, it's full of hope for for a devastated world. Third, it reminds me of a glorious future that awaits us. First Peter, Peter said this, he said it so beautiful. First Peter chapter 1, 18 through 21. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life to inherit it from your forefathers. Isn't that be terrible? Man, did I give enough? Man, maybe if they bring the offering back one more time, I could get enough in there. That'd be horrible to live that life. So most all religions of the world, if you study them, they're a scale system. Did you do enough for the bad things and... And hopefully you balance them out, and at the end, you're just going <laughs> to, boy. Look, he didn't redeem us with perishable, foolish things like that. Verse 19, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but has appeared. There's a Christmas part. He has appeared in these last times for your sake. Amen? Aren't we glad he came?
See, there's a glorious hope. And all those who have their sins forgiven will see him someday. The Bible tells us you'll see his hands and his feet. And he was pierced for you and for me. Just some concluding thoughts here. I read this morning that Americans will spend $371 per child for Christmas. I thought, well, not my kids, but maybe somebody else's. Sorry, boys. (laughs) You were born in a pastor's home. The average American family will spend $861 on Christmas this year. Big business. Some blame capitalism for the materialism of the world. They'll go, oh, those capitalists. The capitalists will say, move to a third world country then. People don't do that. We are a richly, richly blessed nation. And there's nothing wrong with buying your children gifts. But I think the answer lies bigger than gifts and materialism, right? And how do we beat that in, their li- in our lives? Well, I think Jesus himself gives us the answer. He says, where your treasure is, that's where you're going to find your heart. Where's your treasure this Christmas season? Is it Jesus? See, you can give gifts and still keep Jesus in the center. You can stop and say, children, before we open these, let's thank the Lord because the Bible says all that we have comes down from the Father above. Take time to thank him. I, I made a little list here, you know, when you were a kid, you, you wrote a letter to Santa and asked for some things. I wrote down three things that you could ask of God tonight. Just, there's a lot of things we could ask, but I, I just thought of three that would help me be joyful during this time. One, ask God to help you always see Jesus as the God-man. That's kind of strange, God. No, no, it's very important. Ask God to help you always see Jesus as the God-man. Because if you just see him only as God, you won't be saved. If you only see him as a man, you will not be saved. He must be the God-man. It is the number one attack on the Bible and what we believe. Every religion attacks the God-man, the Lord Jesus. So tonight, or tomorrow, or whenever, hopefully regularly, ask God to give you an understanding of the God-man. Lord, don't let me lose that. I ask Christians all over the world this question, is he God? And they'll hesitate. Because most religions will tell you he's not. Ask God that, that he'll help you always remember that he's the God-man. A great joy comes from this. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's fully God, brothers and sisters. He was God in the manger and he was God on the cross. And he's God today. And boy, you'll get joy when you think about that. He was born for you. He died for you. 
He can save you. He can qualify you. He can declare you righteous. He can set you apart. He can grant you peace. He'll understand you. He'll represent you. And he'll present you to the Father completely free of sin for eternity. That's our Savior. So ask God to help you always remember he's the God-man. Number two, ask God for the gift of gratefulness. Ask God for the gift of gratefulness. This one's a hard one. I got the God-man thing down. I've been studying this for a long time. Ask God for the gift of gratefulness. Contentment is the word. Lord, I believe all that you have given me is from you. For some of you, he's chosen to give a lot, and for some of you, he's chosen to give a little but he's perfect in all of his ways. For some of you, he's chosen to give you health, and for some of you, he's taken your health. Ask God for the gift of gratefulness tonight. Lord, I accept what you've given me. For some of you, maybe it's you have to accept who he's given you. Could be funny, could be sad. Ask God for that. Listen to this, Matthew 6, 32. For your Father in heaven knows that you need all these things. He knows you need them. Ask him. I love this. The psalmist says this in Psalms 86, 12 and 13. Just listen to this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for your loving kindness towards me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That'll make you grateful. You can chase all the stuff the world has, and you will never have the gift of gratefulness till you get your mind around the fact, as the psalmist did, that you have delivered me from the depths of of Sheol. Last one. Ask God for the gift to give. You know, oh, here he goes. We already took the offering. Shouldn't you said this earlier, Scott? That's not what I'm talking about. The gift to give. We're really good at taking. We don't have to teach our children to take. Now, Johnny, take the toy away nicely. They just take it. That just comes natural. They're sinners. We taught them to be sinners. They're born from our loans. Ask God for the gift to give. Philippians 2 says this, if we, we missed this verse because I want to come back to it. He says, do nothing out of selfless ambition or empty conceit, but with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. The last words of the dear Apostle Paul before he left the elders in Miletus from the church of Ephesus, he said this, remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. The gift to give is something you need to ask for. We're good takers. We need to give. Marriage relationships have to give. Church, we have to give to each other. We're a family. Some of our family's in need and some has want and some has great. We need. Let's give. Learn to give. It'll bring you joy. And if you're not a giver and you're more of a white knuckle type of guy, 
or gal? Like, I'm going to hold on to this. You're going to pry my dead heads from it type of mentality. Some of you have that. Your spouse told me. No. I <laughs> Say, God, give me the gift to give. I want to be a giver. I want to see needs and I want to meet them. So ask God tonight to help you see Jesus always as a God-man. Ask him to give you the gift of gratefulness and ask him to give you the gift to give. Oh, Christmas will be great if you can just remember those three things this year. Be glorious. Let me pray and then we have another number for you. Father in heaven, we are so blessed to sit here tonight most of the world just can't see your son, Lord. He's faint. There's a baby in a manger. Some bad things happen to him in life. But they don't see him as a savior. They certainly don't see him as God. And, and yet long, we long to spread that message, Lord. But we ourselves, Lord, ask you to help us understand that he is the God-man. He is not just some man laying in a cradle, Lord. He is the creator in the cradle. He is the God of heaven and earth who hung on a cross. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us remember that. And, Father, we ask the gift for the gift of gratefulness, Lord. You have saved our souls from Sheol, Lord, from death, hell, and Hades. Lord, we want to be grateful people. Grateful to you, Lord, and if we can worship you in gratefulness, it will affect those around us. And Lord, we need the gift to give. You were the ultimate lesson. You were the ultimate teacher on giving. You, Father, gave your son. You, Lord Jesus, gave your life. And we are told to have this attitude in us that was in you. So, Father, we pray that you would help us with these three gifts tonight. To accept Jesus as the God-man. To receive gratefulness and the gift to give. We'll have great joy, Lord. We'll do it in your name for your glory. Thank you for this evening, Lord. May you have been worshipped and blessed by what we've done, sung, and said here. In Jesus' name, amen.